You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are glad that you're here with us. So let me tell you, my wife and I have been on exactly one cruise ever. It was 20 years ago, uh, 2003. And um, it was uh, the only cruise that we're ever planning to go on. Because the whole sleeping on a boat, that's just not for me. I mean, unless you're transporting animals on an ark, I'm not into it. So... Anyway, but we went on this cruise, and uh, we decide, uh, one of the things that people told us as we got to the port, they said you should go to this uh, beach called, uh, at St. John, which is supposed to be one of like, the most beautiful beaches in the world, and go snorkeling. And so, so we decided, neither of us had ever been snorkeling, so we decided to go. We got to the beach. Carrie was setting everything up uh, on the beach, got towels and whatnot, and then I went to get the gear. Now, how many of you, I mean, some of you have been snorkeling before. Oh, wow, look, and all of you live to tell the tale. Good for you. Um, so now, uh, the way it worked was as you walk off the beach, there's this path, and then um, there's these two, I wouldn't call, I mean, I think like stores is probably a little bit generous, more like huts. Um, and so there was, on one side, there is this, uh, that's where you get all the snorkeling gear, and then the other side, they were making French fries. So um, I, I decide to get the 800 items that you need to go snorkeling. And uh, so I'm, I'm carrying all of this. You know, I got the flippers, the goggles, that breathing tube that makes you sound like Darth Vader and all the other stuff. And then I also stopped and bought French fries. So I'm kind of got all the stuff like this and I'm holding the fries up as I walk back on the beach. And, um, and that's when I was attacked. Um, I, I got onto the sand and that minute, uh, these local birds started attacking me and, uh, and to the point where, I mean, I started, I was bleeding. I, did, I wasn't sure from where, but I saw blood. And, um, and I'll be honest, and I, you know, I don't have any protection against birds coming from the air, like descending upon you. And so I don't have a lot of memory as to exactly what happened, but my wife saw me and she said, you know, the birds started attacking you and then you just threw everything up in the air. And then she also said that I screamed like a little girl, uh, which I was a little hurt by that. Anyway, but then um, I fell to the ground onto the sand and I just did like stop, drop and roll. I mean, that was the only thing I could think of. And so just to get, because, and then I was trying to see, um, you know, find out where the bleeding was coming from. Because, you know, all this stuff is happening. You can't really feel where you're bleeding. And I did, because I didn't know. Uh, anyway, turns out I wasn't bleeding. Uh, it was the ketchup from the fries. <laughs> but listen, that's not really what's important here. There, I mean, there is a moral to the story, and that is that carbs are going to kill you one way or another. And, uh, but the other thing I learned that day is that not everything is as it seems. And um, sometimes we, we see things from a perspective, and we think that's the whole picture. When the reality is, I tell my kids this all the time, that God's will is like a six-lane highway. And sometimes we think like, oh, this happened because God was doing this. Like, well, God, this happened because God was doing this is one of probably the hundred things that God was doing through that situation with a whole bunch of other people as well. And the thing that we're going to see in our time together is that we're going to be watching not only God work in the Apostle Paul's life, we're going to watch God work in the people's lives that are around him, and some of which doesn't really have anything to do with Paul in that moment. Now, so if you're not aware, uh, this is, if you can believe it, message number 28 in our series in the book of Acts. And, and the book of Acts is this wonderful a narrative book in the New Testament that talks about the growth, development, and multiplication of the early church uh, after the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul, who we've been following, Paul was a rabbi, hated Christians, and uh, had a, an amazing conversion experience, came to know Jesus, and now is going everywhere, planting churches and preaching the gospel. And so he finds himself in the city of Corinth, Corinth was kind of like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was a wild city. It was a very diverse city culturally. It was a diverse city economically and a diverse city religiously. 
But Paul is going to have just great favor in the city, and he's going to stay in Corinth um, for 18 months, which is longer, with the exception of when he goes to Ephesus that we'll see in our next study, where he's in Ephesus for three years. Outside of that, uh, the 18 months that he spends in Corinth is the longest or second longest that he spends anywhere. Now, the, uh, the idea that this is so important, this is such an important lesson for us, because what we're going to see in our study is we just think that we're seeing life in 2020. And by the way, it's not only that we not only don't see life in 2020 with perfect clarity, we're, not even, we're only seeing maybe 5% of what God is doing. We're not noticing the other 95%. And the question is, if I'm only seeing 5% of what God's doing, and even that is a little hazy, um, what do we do with the other 95% that we're not sure about? Well, you've got a couple of options. You can either guess with the other 95% and just kind of hope that you're making the right choice, or number two, which is what I'm going to encourage you to do, is trust God who sees everything with perfect clarity and ask him to lead us. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 18. And uh, Paul has been at Corinth for a little, a little while, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12. It says, When Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, the Jew, uh, when he was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words or names in your own law, look into it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, what we're talking about is that God is doing more than we realize. There's more to meets the eye than what God, than we see of what God is doing. The first thing is this, if you're a note taker, that there are moments when a beating is a blessing. Now, let me just say before we get started, because this is like the exact moment when somebody's going to take a picture of the screen and post it on Instagram, like my pastor is supporting violence, because this is just how insane the world is and my life is. Um, let me just say that that's not what I'm saying. It's like you post that and it's like, you know, welcome to the internet. Someone without a sense of humor will be contacting you shortly. Um, and so now... I'm not condoning violence for violence sake. What I am saying is that there are moments when pain comes into our lives and we think it's a curse, but it actually produces a blessing. And that's what I want to spend some time. Let me explain a little bit further. If you remember last time, and if you weren't, we'll cover it. Paul gets to Corinth and he starts preaching in the synagogue. And something amazing happens as he's preaching in the synagogue. You'll see this in verse 8. It says, then Crispus... The ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. So Crispus uh, is this guy. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He becomes a Christian, and he's like, I can't be the ruler of the synagogue if I'm a follower of Jesus. So he decides to leave that position. But then we just read about a guy named Sosthenes. Sosthenes is the guy that was... Uh, now made the ruler of the synagogue. So they got this new guy, Sosthenes, that they put up to, hey, we want you to bring this charge against Paul. There's also, at the time, a new proconsul uh, named Gallio. Now, a proconsul was essentially a governor in the region. Now, if I can have the map for just a second. I know I th I'm throwing you guys off. Oh, thank you guys. So he's in Achaia. So look where he is. This is Right now, this is southern Greece. All of this is Greece now, but this is, would be southern Greece. This was called Achaia. So he, uh, a proconsul was essentially a governor that was appointed by the Roman Senate. So Gallio becomes the governor of this entire region and makes his office, or what's called the judgment seat, the bima in Greek, uh, he makes this in Corinth, because Corinth is the largest city in this area. So they're like, we've got a new ruler of the synagogue that we can push to do this. There's a new uh, governor, essentially, the new proconsul. We can try to get him to do what we want. And so uh, there's also archaeological evidence uh, inscriptions that put Gallio in Corinth at 51 AD. Those are extra biblical references. And then, of course, the biblical record puts Paul right there, 51 AD. So they think that they can take advantage of Gallio being new, Sosthenes being new, and they bring this charge against Paul. And, uh, but you know, you don't become the governor of this entire region in the Roman Empire and it be your first rodeo. 
So Gallio is a seasoned politician and has no interest getting involved in some religious dispute. So he dismisses the Jews that are making the charge. But I want you to notice that it says this, the text that we read, it says that as Paul was about to speak, Gallio steps in. He's like, no, we're not doing this. And it's like, well, why isn't Paul allowed to speak? I'm sure if he spoke, he would have preached the gospel. No, he is not speaking. And I believe it's because God wants to show Paul something, that, that God is with Paul. And there are moments in your life when you've just got to stand back and watch God work on your behalf. Now, some of you know this, that uh, we, my wife and I planted Calvary about 23 years ago. And I spent the previous four and a half years uh, running a college. Now, the college, the main campus was in California, but they had started some extension campuses, and one of the extension campuses was in Fort Lauderdale, which is the school that I oversaw. We had about 200, 250 students. And so, now, one of the things that I did when we got there was we had to get an accreditation in the state of Florida because the school had an accreditation in California, but when you st it doesn't transfer from state to state. So I had to work with an accreditation agency so that the students that were coming in and out could transfer credits and all that kind of stuff. So I met with uh, this board. I, I met with one of the the guy's on the board, super guy, and uh, he kind of walked me through the process and he goes, okay, the final things, you got to fly to Tampa and present your case to the final accreditation board. He's like, I can't be there that day, but you just go there and take care of it. So I fly to Tampa for this meeting and I show up and there are 20 schools on the docket to meet uh, to, to, to try to get accreditation. I'm number 19 on the list. So I get there at 8 a.m. and I'm, they're not even going to talk to me until 3.34 in the afternoon. So minus lunch for about six, six and a half hours, I listen to this board yell and scream at people who are applying. And I watch the applicants yell back, arguing their case. They have these huge file bins that they've brought with all their documentation. They have their entire administrative board there. They have lawyers. They have other officials that are there. I am there by myself. I have one file folder with a packet that I had prepared for everybody on the board. That's it. And so I'm watching this go down. I mean, this is like, basically, um, it, people are screaming at each other when they're not getting approved. And I'm like, I don't even know what's gonna happen. Like, they're just gonna throw me out of here. I, like, this is gonna be insane. So uh, my turn comes around. Now, mind you, I'm 23 at the time. I'm not even sure I was shaving regularly when I go to this thing. I, I, my turn comes around, and, and they're like, okay, next is uh, Calvary Chapel has a thing. Like, okay, guys. And uh, so I, I'm like, here, here's the packet. I hand it to everybody. And, um, and they're looking around to see if there's anybody else, and it's just, you know, me by my lonesome. You know, like, hey, just me, guys. Hey, how's it going? And, uh, and so then the chairman of the board, now the, the chairman of the board was this, um, you know, this burly, rough guy, you know, older guy, salt and pepper beard, his, you know, like one of these guys, like their face looks like a map of the world. You know what I mean? And so this is like a rough guy. And, um, and, and so he, um, he says, um, Calvary Chapel, is this school associated with uh, Pastor Chuck Smith out of California? And, uh, uh, and I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, yes, uh, I think. Uh, would you like it to be? And, uh, you know, I'm like, I'll save just about anything at this point. And uh, I'm like, no, yes, it is, sir. And he says to me, he goes, when I was in college, I used to listen to Chuck Smith on the radio. That man's teaching blessed my life at such a pivotal moment in my life. And he says, I approve this school. And then the other members of the board, they're like covering their microphones, you know, like they do on C-SPAN. You know, like C-SPAN's a great time to watch. Like, I wonder what unintelligent people think about things. You just turn on C-SPAN, you find out. Um, and so anyway, um, so, and that's, that's not even a joke. That's just like a reality. Anyway, so, um, and so they're like, uh, so we haven't discussed this and the other board members haven't weighed in. And, and, uh, and this guy, I mean, this is like a guy you just don't say things like that to, you know? And he's like, do you have a problem with this? And, uh, and they're like, oh no, boss, we're good. You know? And, uh, and so he turns to me, I, I kid you not, this is like five minutes and this whole conversation. He's like, young man, go do what God's called you to do. You're approved. And, you know, and I was so, yeah, I appreciate that. If people clapped, I would have had no idea because the minute he said you're approved, I ran out of there as fast as I could before people could change their mind. And, and listen, I'm telling you, there is no way that I could uh, uh, organize, orchestrated a situation like that. But I have learned that there are days in your life where God shows up and there's other days where God shows off. 
and he just does some amazing things in your life and you're just, you're just blown away. And I believe that that's what God is doing in Paul's life. Um, like you, Paul, I got this. You don't have to say one word. I'm gonna take care of this for you. But you know, there's also something else because somebody got beat up that day, right? We, we, we read that at, at the end. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's sad, but it's also kind of funny if you can laugh at things like that. I'm okay laughing at things like that. And, um, but it says, it says that they all took Sosthenes and beat him before the judgment. Like, Gallio is sitting there and people just start beating him up. And he's like, huh, I'm not seeing anything. So we have we placed a lunch order yet? And they're like, you know, wow, it's kind of weird. And, um, and now... Sosthenes is the guy that took Crispus's job. Crispus became a Christian. Then they're like, Sosthenes, you can be the ruler of the synagogue. Oh, great. This is like a cushy job. Then the guy's getting pounded into the ground. He's like, oh, maybe I took the wrong job. And um, because now here's the thing that I think is so powerful is that uh, now Sosthenes is getting beat because he got pushed into doing something, making this charge. And he's watching God protect Paul and that it's actually some unjust Roman governor that's protecting him from all this. And this apparently has a powerful effect on him. How do we know that? Because when Paul is in Ephesus after a few years, and he's writing a letter to the church in Corinth that he helped start when he spent this 18 months, look what he says. Paul, called to be an apostle, by, uh, apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. After his beating... Sosthenes becomes a Christian, and not only that, he becomes one of Paul's traveling companions. And that's why when he's lit in, in Ephesus and he's writing to the Corinthians, like, hey, remember old Sosthenes? Right, the guy that looked like Rocky at the end of Rocky II? Uh, you guys probably don't know that reference. Uh, but, you know, he's with me. And this is, a, friends, listen, God is up to so much more than you and I can possibly realize. And our best bet is to trust him because he's working out a whole bunch of things all at the same time. In fact, we see this, what happens next. Look at verse 18. It says, so Paul remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had cut his hair off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when he had asked him to stay a little longer time with them, he did not consent, but he took his leave of them saying, I must by all means keep the coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed in Caesarea, he had gone up and greeted the church. He went down to Antioch. And after he had spent time there, he departed and went to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now, once again, we're saying that God is doing more than we realize and that sometimes a beating becomes a blessing. But the other thing I want you to notice if you're a note taker is that there are moments when consecration brings clarity. Now let me explain what's happening because there's a lot of cities and movement. So let me explain what happens if we can see the map. Paul is in Corinth, right? He spends 18 months there. Then he goes to Centria. Centria, I know that looks like, I wonder how far that is. Centria is only three miles from Corinth. It's the port city. So anything that was coming in and out of there was coming through, through this uh, city that was three miles. So this is where Paul cuts his hair. And then they go to Ephesus. This is where he drops off that couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who are with him. Then he goes down, he goes to Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was the port city uh, in Israel. And then he goes from Caesarea down to Jerusalem. He greets the church. And then he goes from there up to Syria, to Antioch. And that's where he was there. And then he comes back and goes through Galatia. And this is, these are all cities where he planted churches. And then we'll get to his time in Ephesus um, in, our next, in our next study. But, so I'm telling you all of that. Now, the thing I want to focus on is that it says that Paul cut his hair, that he had shaved his head. Like, what is the point of that? Now, there's a little bit of debate among scholars, but for the most part, there's agreement that Paul had taken what's called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow, the Nazarite vow is found in Numbers chapter six, and it's a vow that people take. It's a vow of consecration, where you're separating yourself um, for the purposes of God for a season. And there's three things that you would do as you are part of the Nazarite vow. So you would not cut your hair. You'd let your hair grow long during the time you took the vow. You would also not go near dead bodies and you would avoid wine, even to the point of avoiding grapes. And so now this could be done for a season. It could be done for three months, six months, a year. Um, there's two people 
in the Bible that were Nazarites for their entire lives. John the Baptist was a Nazarite um, from birth. Uh, the other is Samson was a Nazarite uh, or supposed to be a Nazarite from birth. And so you would do the vow for a certain period of time and then you would shave your head and then you would take the hair and after you had taken the hair, you would go to the temple and you would burn the hair on the altar with a burnt offering. And, um, and it was just this picture of consecration. Now, here's the thing that I find so amazing. When you and I smell burning hair, it's gross, right? It just smells nasty. And yet, if you were in the temple and you smelled burning hair, you knew it meant something totally different. You'd smell it and be like, oh, you know what that smells like? Somebody's committed. Somebody's consecrating themselves to the Lord. They're setting themselves apart for God's purposes. And so while it is a distinct smell that maybe we don't like in that culture, it smelled of commitment. And so now, um, now the scholars do speculate as to the why Paul took the vow. And so I want to tell you, and, and so um, the text seems to indicate something. And so I want to walk this through with you. I want you to understand what Paul's life has been like uh, for the last couple of years. Remember he gets that, if you remember a few chapters back, he gets that vision from the man of Macedonia. He goes into Macedonia, he gets to Philippi, and then he gets beaten and thrown in jail. Then they let him out. Then they go to this city called Berea. A riot breaks out in Berea. Then from there, he goes to Athens. In Athens, he gives, he totally strikes out. No church gets started. And then um, it says in 1 Corinthians, when I came to you, I came with much fear and trembling. Paul had had a really rough time when he got to Corinth. And then God speaks to him and says, don't be afraid. I have many people in this city, but you keep preaching. And, uh, and, and, and what God does in, through Paul is just incredible. This very vibrant church uh, forms in, in the city uh, of Corinth. And so what the, the text seems to indicate that the purpose of the vow was gratitude for God's protection during the time that he was in Corinth. And so once again, the Nazarite vow is, is a vow of separation. That you're that you're setting yourself you're setting yourself apart. Um, the first time I taught on the Nazarite vow was oh back in like 2006, and um, I was teaching numbers and uh, and so we I think we only had one service on this particular Sunday. It was early, and um, but I had talked to uh, a guy in our church that had kind of longer hair, and I'm like, hey, I'm going to do this message on the Nazarite vow, and would you help me? And he said, yeah. Uh, what do you want? I said, I want to shave your head. And, uh, and he was like, okay. I'm used into it. I said, oh, perfect. Uh, and he's like, when do you want to do it? I said, oh, we're going to do it on Sunday during the service. And uh, so anyway, sir, the, the, the message happens. I walk up, I introduce this kid, and he sits on a stool. And I preach the entire message um, as I was cutting his hair and then shaving his head. And, um, and then there was times when I had to stop because I was reading the text. And uh, so there was a part where it was like halfway. He was bald on one side and I'm reading the text. I mean, this is why, listen, th it was really, it was wonderful. The time before the internet and social media, you could make mistakes and it wasn't like plastered everywhere. And so I just, you know, I look back and I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I would do that. But that Sunday was like church slash supercuts. And, uh, but, so I don't know. Anyway, so we were still learning. And, uh, <laughs> but um, now let me talk about Samson for a minute. If you're familiar with the story of Samson, and even if you're like not a Bible person, you're like, oh, that's the guy that got the really famous haircut. Y yes, that's the guy. But I want, you to, I want you to see something that I think is really important as we talk about Paul's commitment to take the vow. Um, remember, the Nazarite had three vows, right? The first one, no wine, not even grapes, right? So look what happens in Samson's life. Now, Samson was a Nazarite from birth. And so, and by the way, the book of Judges tells us that he was, he ruled Israel. He was a judge over Israel for 20 years and that his kind of downfall in life happened basically in the last maximum year or two of, uh, of, of his life. But it says this in, in Judges chapter 14, it says, so Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, once again, for a guy that can't have wine, a guy that can't even be around grapes, what are you doing in a vineyard? He's walking through the vineyard. And by the way, he's still got all of his strength. A lion comes out to attack him. And because of this amazing strength that he has, he literally tears this lion apart. He kills the lion. And, um, and, and, but remember, also, like he defended himself, that's fine. But then look what happens uh, in a couple verses later, in verses 8 and 9. After some time, when he returned to get her, that's this woman in Timnah, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion 
And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion, and he took some of it in his hands and went along eating. First of all, dude, that's disgusting. You found a dead lion ripped in half that you, that you killed, whatever, fine. But then bees showed up, and you know, bees don't know any better. They're just going to make a beehive wherever. But you do. You show up, and you're just going to like scoop that. Come on. All of this for a snack? Anyway, so... He's doing this, but remember, this is a guy who's not supposed to be around dead bodies. And remember, the point is, no wine, why? Because there's no celebrating. No dead bodies, because we're not even going to go to a funeral. Um, this is a concert, and, and, and why is your hair long? Your hair is long because it's a, it's a visual representation that you're separating yourself for God's purposes. So by the time we get to chapter 16 in Judges, and the whole story of Samson is chapters 13, 14, 15, 16. So we get to chapter 16, and he is in love with this woman named Delilah. And Delilah has been asking him what the secret of his strength is. And he just has been toying with her. It's, oh, it's this. If I get seven ropes that have never been used, you know, whatever, and it doesn't work. And, uh, and then he says, well, if you put my hair in seven braids, and it's like, okay, now we're inching closer. And then she just says, you know, you're just, why do you keep telling me lies? If you love me, tell me what it is. And, uh, and he says this in chapter, se- uh, chapter 16, verse 17. And he says this to her, no razor has ever come upon my head. For I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. And if I am shaven, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, um, and by the way, it says this, that at that moment, Delilah knew that he had told her, he had told her the truth. Now, it says then after that, that he lulled her to sleep on her lap and that then um, someone came and shaved his head. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute because sometimes we read stories in the Bible like, oh yeah, that's just what happened. I want you to think about this. Um, at, at how, I don't care how heavy of a sleeper. I, as far as heavy sleepers, listen, lots of things could happen in my house and I wouldn't know what was going on. But if someone was trying to shave my head, and I don't have hair, but if someone, imagine having super long hair and someone was trying to shave your head. I mean, do you think? that you might wake up. And by the way, when it says, like, and then they cut his hair, it's not like, oh, we cut an inch off. No, no, no. They shaved his head. I'm, t- I'm sorry, you're going to wake up. And so then what's the problem? You see, they shave his head. But see, the problem is, is that he had been around the, the carcass and nothing happened. He walked through the vineyard and nothing happened. And he's starting to think, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm still always going to have the power of God to do whatever it is that I need to do. And probably, to me, one of the saddest verses in all the Bible is that after she cut his hair, then Delilah starts tormenting him. And she says, um, you know, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And then Samson says this to himself. He said, I will arise as before and throw off these Philistines. And then this just sad verse, it says, but he did not know that the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. And you're like, man, God departed from him? No, no, no. Samson departed a long time ago. He departed a long time ago, and now God is simply honoring that decision. And by the way, you know that Samson still doesn't even get it? You see, because by the way, every picture that we have of Samson that people draw is this humongous guy that looks like Jack Reacher. And, uh, and it's like, oh yeah, this guy's really strong. no. Samson did not look like Jack Reacher because if, if they're like, what's the secret of your strength? Well, I bench press a thousand pounds. Oh, they're like, oh, that's the secret of his strength. No, no, no. He was this normal guy. He didn't, he didn't have anything about him that you would assume that he was strong. And yet he had a supernatural strength to him. And, he, and Samson's like, well, the whole reason that I have supernatural strength is because I have long hair. No. No. Samson's Samson's strength did not come from the length of his hair. His strength came from his commitment to God. The hair was simply the outward representation of that commitment to God. Paul's vow was a symbol of the commitment that he makes. And by the way, your life is a product of the commitments that you make. If you tell me what you're committed to and I tell you what I'm committed to, we could map out the trajectory of our lives. And it's not because we're prognosticators. It's because we know that commitments lead people in certain directions. The person who says, I'm not going to commit to anything. I want to keep my options open. Their commitment, they are, they are making a commitment. The commitment is to be unattached. And it's a very sad way to live because the person who commits to nothing is guaranteed to become nothing. The person who is half-hearted in their commitment, 
They're always going to feel frustrated. Why? Because they see a little progress, but they never see the big victories in their lives. Because we've done a good job giving lip service to being committed, but we don't follow through. But here's the thing. What about when we make godly commitment? Real commitment. When we decide to follow Jesus and when he tells us, if you want to follow me, then you've got to take up your cross, deny yourself, and come after me. You see, even things that don't matter require something of us. How much more do we think the most important things in life? Sometimes we think, yeah, the big things. I, I want to be super committed. I want these super things, but I don't want to put in a lot of effort. That's not the way it works. Everything requires commitment. And, and listen, the problem is, is that we live in a world that things happen sometimes without a lot of commitment. So my daughter Mia, uh, my, my oldest daughter Mia turned 17 on Tuesday, and, uh, it was, which I'm still in shock over because sometimes she'll say something um, with a certain inflection and it, it still sounds to me like she's five. And, um, and, and even though she's way mature for her age, but some, anyway, I just hear things. Well, anyway, one day, um, six-year-old Mia comes into my office at home and she's very frustrated. She says, dad, the TV isn't working. So I go into the family room and um, I'm like, mama, the TV works fine. She says, well, there's a show I want to watch, but it's not on demand. And I'm thinking, you're six years old. How do you know about on-demand TV? And, um, and, and, and I'm like, well, yeah, sometimes that works. Not everything is on demand. And then she's giving me this thing like, you know, yeah, it's a hard knock life. And I'm like, hold on. You, you know, and, and I started, I'm like, let me tell you something about television when I was a kid. All right. Like, this is like the most old guy moment right now. Okay. I was like, that was just watching TV required such an incredible commitment. Because TV, when I, when we, you know, if you're my age, TV was just on. When they played a show, it was on. And if you missed it, it was gone forever. And I remember one time, I got home late from school, probably detention, and uh, I got home late from school, and there was this anime show that I loved called Star Blazers. I talked about it a couple weeks ago. And um, I missed an episode of Star Blazers and all these shows. And I'm like, I missed what happened here. And, uh, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. And so, and I, I was remember talking to my mom and I'm like, how do I find the number of the station that plays Star Blazers? Because I need to call them because I missed the program. And this is, I was like, I, and I'm like, I want to make my case to the station manager. Like, hey, can you play this one again? Because I got home late from school. Because, and I'm like, this is what it took, right? And so, and I'm like, mama, when I was six years old, there weren't remote, I mean, there was a remote control. It was me. Like my parents would sit on this couch and then I had a chair that I sat next to. It was a little closer to the TV because they were like, Robert, change the channel. So I'd get up. <laughs> and then, you know, we'd find, because there's like six stations, you know, and then they'd get there and then I'm like, all right. And, and, um, and, 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 you know, this is the day. I don't know if cable existed in like 1980, 1981. We didn't have it. What we had was, you know, we had this little like bunny ear situation. But my parents were too cheap to buy like the real bunny ear, so they'd get one of their friends that was broken, and then through this little MacGyver trick where they'd take a wire hanger and some aluminum foil, they would try to create like this NASA satellite that would get, that would get their thing. And, and this was, and by the way, it didn't work because we were always like, Robert, move the thing. And so then I'm like, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to do something here, and uh, and, and so I'm moving it. And I remember that I'm trying to move the thing. And, you know, back then, like, uh, at least, you know, the old TVs, they were like, t a TV was a piece of furniture. And so it was like this brown box. And so, and I remember putting my hand on it. I'm like, I don't know what you want me to do. I'm like, stay right there. <laughs> because apparently I had become like the human grounding conduit. And then as I stood there, they were like, don't move. And then the, it, the TV started getting fuzzy. And they're like, all right, lift your arm. Just like that. And I'm like, my arm's getting tired. Like, it's a 30-minute program, kid. You can handle it. And uh, you know how much more we had to do in Cuba? And, and um, I didn't know you guys even had TVs in Cuba. Uh, and, so, and, and so listen, the, I, I'm, this is the amount of commitment that it took to just watch television. And I'm saying, and, and here's the point, right? Is it, that sometimes we want God to do great things in our lives and we don't want to be committed. And, and this is the point is that Paul is going, right? And he's like, I'm, I'm going, I'm not going to miss the feast. They're like, hey, why don't you stay? And he just politely declines. Why? Because there's clarity on what God wants him to do because he's committed. Let me tell you something. And every week people come up to me and they're like, pastor, I got this going on. I, 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 could you pray for me? Because I want God to lead me or direct me or speak to me, and, and which I'm happy to do it. And I always say the same thing. Like, look, 
I'm gonna pray for you, but if you want clarity on what God wants you to do, then here's what I'm gonna encourage you to do. I'm gonna encourage you to fast. And they're like, yeah, I want God to answer fast. And I'm like, that's not even what I, that is not even what I said. I'm like, if you want, yeah, if you want God to answer fast, then fast. That's what you need to do. And uh, why? Because fasting is like the Nazarite vow. It's a time of separation where we seek God above all else. And um, in fact, in Isaiah 58, there's this powerful passage about fasting where he says, um, where God says this through the prophet. He says, is this not the fast that I have chosen? to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that, you're, that you break every yoke. If you are struggling with an addiction, if you're struggling with a sin that's just eaten your lunch, and you just can't get victory over it, listen, and you want to break free of it, fast. Why? Because sometimes, listen, food is the thing that we turn to to comfort us. And what we really need is not comfort. We need the power of God to infuse us and empower us. And a t that time of personal consecration leads to clarity in our lives. Okay, I got to go quick now. Too much time talking about Nazarite vows. Okay, look at verse 24. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he only knew the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he had desired to cross into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, we're going to make our initial descent at this point. And uh, let me just give you the last thing. What is God doing? Because um, there are moments when um, the, the beating is, is a blessing. We talked about that. And that there are moments when consecration, setting yourself apart, brings clarity. And then finally, there are moments when humility brings honor. So let's talk about this guy, Apollos, for a minute. Um, Apollos is from the city of Alexandria in Egypt. And let me give you a little bit of background just so you understand why he was such a knowledgeable person. Um, Alexandria was in Egypt, as I mentioned. It was the capital of Egypt until 969 uh, AD. So this was the capital of Egypt for more than 1,000 years. In 969, it changed and became Cairo. But it's called Alexandria because it was built by Alexander the Great in 330 BC. And Alexander's desire was to build the largest library in the world in Alexandria. Now, he never lived to see that, but after his death, the library was built and it housed more than any other library in the ancient world. There were over 700,000 volumes in the library of Alexandria. And um, when Jewish scholars wanted to translate the Hebrew scriptures from Hebrew into the common language, which was Greek, uh, they went to Alexandria and, and produced this, this translation. It's still available today. It's, it's called the Septuagint. And uh, now, Alexandria was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, um, second only to the city of Rome. It had over 750,000 inhabitants. One third of those inhabitants were Jewish. Um, when Joseph and Mary had to flee Egypt, I'm sorry, flee to Egypt when Herod went crazy and was going to kill all the kids. Um, they more than likely went to Alexandria because there was such a large uh, Jewish population there. Now, so for Apollos to be Jewish but have a Greek name isn't strange because he's from Alexandria and it had a heavy Jewish population, and, uh, but it was still part of very um, Hellenistic or very uh, influenced by Greek culture. So, for him to be eloquent, for him to be learned is not out of the ordinary. The challenge that we have with Apollos is that Apollos had incomplete information. Apollos was preaching, but he only knew the baptism of John. That is, he only knew the ministry of John the Baptist, which means that, I mean, likely, and we're kind of creating a composite here, but he came from Alexandria and heard John the Baptist saying, repent, the Messiah is coming, and he just left and started preaching that the Messiah is coming and missed the coming of the Messiah. And this is, I don't know, there's something kind of strange and comical about that. And so 
He's in there, he's in Ephesus, and he's like, you know, you need to get ready. The Messiah's coming. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. He's going for it. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila are in the background, like, we're going to blow this guy's mind when he's done. And we're going to tell him, like, hey, the, you know, the Messiah, yeah, like, he showed up. I'm like, for real? You know, yeah. And, it's like, and, and this is, like, is going to blow his mind. And so, and by the way, this is the thing that I find so amazing. Aquila and Priscilla were a faithful couple, right? They had no way, nowhere near the level of education that Apollos had, and yet they instructed him. And Luke tells us they instructed him in the way of the Lord more accurately. Um, I, I, what I love about Apollos is that he was a gifted scholarly guy, but you know what? He had an even greater supply. He had humility and teachability. And I don't know if you've ever had that, where you're trying to explain something to someone, and they're, they're just like, they're not, even, they're not even listening. If you're a parent, you've had this sensation many times in your life. But like, you ever try to get your kids to taste a food? And they're like, no, I don't like it. Like, you know, you've never even tried it. And, and it's a food you know they're going to like. And they're like, no, never. And I'm like, dude, don't even. Do not even. You know, and, and so I remember trying to get my kids to taste honey mustard. I'm telling you, that, it took like an act of Congress to get honey mustard. And, uh, and I remember Mia, like, no, not into it. And then, and, and by the way, I love honey mustard. I've made it a personal rule not to trust people that don't like honey mustard. It tells me their discernment is off. And so, and so anyway, um, she finally tried honey mustard. She loved it. Xander too, totally against it. And then, um, now Xander tried it and, and now Xander loves honey mustard so much when he was younger, he didn't even need food to eat honey mustard. We were out at a restaurant one day and Xander, ever since he was a, a kid, always sits next to me. Even to this day, he always sits next to me. I love it. And, um, but Carrie was on the other side of the table and she's like, Bob, I need you to, I need you to deal with this. And uh, I'm like, deal with what? And so I look over and you know, the, the server had um, gotten our drinks and then our sauces to the stuff that we're gonna, that we're gonna eat. And, um, and so, and those, he, there was some honey mustard there. And I, I look, I turn over and Xander has a straw <laughs> and he's just drinking the honey mustard. And I look and I'm like, honey, I, I don't see what's going on. I don't, I don't see an issue. And she's like, Bob, deal with this. It's time. And so I, I'm like, I don't really know what to say. And, and so I'm like, um, hey, Zan, um, you've done what I've always dreamed. And uh, I said, but I feared the social stigma associated with drinking your dressing. And so, and, and you know, it's just, there's just, that's part of the challenge of correction, right? Is that sometimes the person that we're sharing with doesn't see correction as a good thing. And by the way, I've just noticed this. Um, the people who know the most tend to ask the most questions. And the people who know the least tend to act like they know everything. And, and by the way, let me just tell you, this is so important. There's nothing wrong with being a beginner. There's nothing wrong with being a beginner. There's nothing wrong with being a white belt. Because all of us are white belts in certain areas of life, and others of us are black belts in certain areas of life. Nothing wrong with that. The only problem is, is that when you're a white belt, but you act like you're a black belt, that's where disaster comes because you start making terrible decisions. This is why Proverbs says in Proverbs 26, do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. Why is there more hope for a fool? Because the, a fool can acknowledge that he is one. And, and have the, desire, the ability to grow, learn, and stop being one. The person who's wise in his own eyes, I mean, he's stuck. And so the thing that we need more than anything is we need more humility and more curiosity. These are the essentials that it takes to become a wise person. So let's fast forward a little bit in Apollos' life. Where does this teachability, right? He's going to humble himself. Where does this teachability get him? Well, as we mentioned, Apollos is going to go to Achaia, which means he's going to spend some time in Corinth. He's going to be spending a lot of time teaching the people in Corinth. And then a few years later, when Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, I want you to see something in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I only follow Christ. Now, let me just, a couple things here. Now, now, First of all, there was a bad thing that was happening in Corinth, and that is that the church was divided, and they were divided over their favorite teacher. And, um, but I just want you, if we can just look at this, acknowledging that it was bad, but just acknowledging something that's also happening here, and that is, I mean, who's mentioned here? Paul? Paul started the church. Of course Paul is going to have a big voice. Peter? 
Of course, Peter's one of the 12. Peter's the guy that gave the sermon that birthed the church on the day of Pentecost. So you've got the guy that started the church in Corinth, the guy that preached the message that birthed the church, capital C church, and who else? Apollos? I mean, do you understand just how amazing that is? Like Apollos being mentioned with these two giants? This is the equivalent of someone saying, my favorite guitar player is Eddie Van Halen. And then somebody else says, my favorite guitar player is Jimi Hendrix. And then somebody else says, my favorite guitar player is Pastor Bob. And uh, yes, and that's the appropriate, that's the appropriate uh, emotion. Why? Because I've got some game, but Eddie and Jimmy, I am not. All right? And so, but this is, and by the way, Eddie Van Halen is the correct answer to that question. But here's, here's the point, is that Apollos is being spoken of on the same level as Peter and Paul, these giants, these legends. And, and, and this is the thing. And there were people in Corinth saying, listen, I learned more. I learned more from Apollos than I learned from, from anybody else. And how did this happen? Because one couple walked up to Apollos and, and, and tried to teach him something, and he didn't shy away. Instead, he was teachable. Listen, deciding to be teachable is the decision that impacts every other decision in your life. Because if you want to transform your marriage, let me tell you something, then be teachable. You want to transform your parenting and your kids? Be teachable. You want to transform your future? You've got to be teachable. Because too often we think, well, whatever I figured out is kind of good enough. I hear that with parents. Like, yeah, man, I'm just going to do whatever my parents did. That'll be fine. I always say the same thing. Like, are you happy with the product they produced? And uh, because when I was going to be a parent, I decided I was going to do the opposite of what my parents did. And not because they're bad people. I just wasn't real happy with their, the, the final product. And I'm like, we had a lot of software updates that needed to happen before we got this thing going where it needed in the right direction. And so now, and so um, <laughs> when I asked my wife to marry me, the first thing I did after that was I went to our church. Now, the church that we came, the kind of the church we grew up spiritually, it's the only church we ever know outside of Calvary coming, starting uh, Calvary here. Um, I, I went to our church's tape ministry. And uh, now, just so you know, this was, I know I'm going to, some of you are like, what's a cassette? And, and it's okay to not know what a cassette is. It just means we can't be friends. And, um, but a cassette was, anyway, a cassette, Google it. But, um, but they had this like little store. It was a tape ministry where they had recorded every single message that had ever been preached in that church onto a cassette. And you could um, rent or buy um, all of these cassettes. Well, I went in the day after I got engaged, I asked my wife to marry me, and I said, I want to buy every sermon that's ever been preached in this church on the subject of marriage. And I did, and I used to have this little, like, Tupperware thing in my car, full of cassettes, and all I would do is just one after another, just pop cassettes. I mean, it's like, now you do it on your phone, it's so easy now, anyway, I hate it. But, uh, but it's just, back then, I mean, it was like, it was a whole situation. And, um, and here's why I did that, because I had no context for how a marriage works. Both of my parents are divorced multiple times over. Every aunt, every uncle, every, both of my grandparents um, were divorced. Everyone that my parents knew was divorced multiple, multiple, uh, you know, multiple times over. So I decided I was 21 years old. Who, and I mean, I, I didn't know anything, but I said, I'm going to find out what the Bible says about marriage because I, this is the one thing I can't mess up. And by the way, my wife's story is exactly the same. Her parents divorced multiple times. Her grandparents divorced. Um, aunts and uncles, even their pets got divorced. And um, one time one wanted to reconcile and say, hey, you're barking up the wrong tree. And uh, sorry, I know it's bad. I know it's bad. And yet it just, I can only use it in certain contexts. And that's why it had to come out. So anyway, but listen, I tell you all of that. And uh, this week, my wife and I will celebrate 27 years being married. Yeah, thank you. And I'll tell, you what I find, I'll tell you what I find just so amazing now is after, you, you've been married for a long time, everybody wants to talk about marriage. And uh, so, you know, uh, a couple of months ago, we go to this restaurant and um, we, we sit down and um, now we don't, uh, I didn't know the server, but there's a couple servers that we know and one that comes to church here. And, and so, um, but one server is like, hey, uh, so-and-so told me that um, you're a pastor and that, you know, you you talk about marriage and stuff. I'm like, yeah. And then the guy just proceeds to sit down and tell me about his, hey, I'd like to talk about my marriage. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, uh, I, I, I'd like to talk about lunch. And, uh, but I can't say that because I'm a Christian. So I'm like, yeah, uh, let's, yeah, man, let's talk about that. And um, that's why I'm here. And uh, 
besides that sandwich I'd like you to bring me once this is all wrapped up. And so, anyway, so, but we talk. But, you know, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that people who are far from God and wouldn't call themselves Christians are fascinated when a marriage can last in a culture that um, it, relationships are disposable. And let me tell you, it's not because I'm the smartest guy in the world. It's not because Carrie and I are more compatible uh, than everybody else. Listen, you want to know what it is? I'm going to tell you the secret. We were teachable. Because, and I want to tell you this, getting older does not make you wiser. I'm sorry, it doesn't. Just because you're 40 years old doesn't mean you're 40 years wise. Some people are on their 30th anniversary of being 10, and they just haven't grown up. And listen, wisdom is growing up. Wisdom is delaying gratification. Wisdom is doing what's right now for the purpose of what's best later. And that's why, as believers in Jesus, we are encouraged to find the wisdom of God. And you know what's amazing about the wisdom of God? It's all wrapped up in a person. Once again, 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. You see, what did Jesus do for us? He did what we could never do for ourselves. He died for us. He rose again. He offers us forgiveness in life. We could never figure that out on our own. And you know what wisdom does? It provides answers and insight and direction that we all desire, but we could never figure out on our own. And he invites us on the journey with him. And so whether you're young or whether you're old or whether you're somewhere in between, be wise enough to take steps. Be teachable enough to take steps in his direction because my friends, God is doing more than you could possibly realize. Let's pray together. And Lord, we wanna thank you so much. We thank you for your incredible love for us, that you don't leave us to just figure it out. But instead, you want to walk with us because you are the embodiment of wisdom. So Lord, help us. Help us to see you in everything. Help us to know what to do and when to do it and the manner in which um, to re rightly reflect you. So Lord, we thank you. Do your incredible work in us. Help us to see you at work even when we don't realize it. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.